TED Audio Collective. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. The best place to see stars is at home with Prime Video. Get everything included with Prime, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. Rent or buy hits like Mean Girls, starring Renee Rapp. Or add-on channels like Max for the HBO original Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. You've never seen so many stars in one place. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership not required to rent or buy. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Welcome to the TED Interview. I'm Steven Johnson. If you've been following the news from the technology world, you might have noticed that the headlines have gotten a little, well, strange lately. I mean, one big tech company is convinced that in the next few years, we'll all be moving to someplace called the metaverse. And just down the road from that tech company, another tech company is debating whether they've just created an AI that thinks and feels. And uh, also, people are making and losing vast fortunes by buying and selling digital images of bored apes. Now, these are exactly the kind of turbulent developments that we like to examine and understand here at the TED interview, usually by talking to scientists or futurists or tech critics who can guide us through these new worlds. But there's another kind of guide that has always been an important resource for societies trying to make sense of sudden change, the storyteller. And today we have as our guest one of the great storytellers of our time, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Jennifer Egan. Egan is the author of six novels, including A Visit from the Goon Squad, which won both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award. Her latest book, a sequel of sorts to Goon Squad, is The Candy House. It's a dazzling alternate history of our present moment, weaving together threads about virtual reality, human memory, drug escapism, archetypal narrative structures, games, and much more. We wanted to talk to Egan about the continued relevance of the novel in a world teeming with technological novelty, and how she manages to write books that flirt with sci-fi futurism without falling into the usual dystopian tropes. A review of Candy House in the New York Times called it a, quote, spectacular palace built out of rabbit holes. So get ready to dive down some of those rabbit holes over the next hour. Jennifer Egan, welcome to the TED interview. Thank you. So much to talk about. First off, congratulations uh, on the new book, The Candy House. It's interesting having a novelist on this show because I think the audience is divided into two groups of people, people who have read the novel and all they want to do is talk about 
the characters and the plot lines and, and the formal inventiveness of, of this book in particular. And then you have people who haven't read it yet. And so discussing the novel is filled with spoiler alerts uh, or it's just a world they haven't encountered yet. And I think the, the best way to do it, in a sense, is to kind of talk uh, around the novel, talk about some of the issues it raises. It has a lot to say about technology and social media and also to talk about your creative process. I mean, there is a lot going on in this book. To me, um, uh, you know, it, it's very hard to capture the full range of it, but you're in the middle of book tour. Y- you must have a, a, some kind of standard explanation of, of what this book is. Can you at least share that with our listeners? Sure. And I'm also, I may get specific about plot elements because I think, as you say, because this book has so many different worlds in it, I don't think it's possible to really spoil it exactly for a person who hasn't read it yet. So I I think I'll just start by setting up the opening of it, which in a way is where it started for me, which is that a tech, a very successful tech icon who is extremely famous is having a midlife crisis because he has no idea what he is going to do next, what his new idea is. The idea that he's had is, I'm positing, basically social media. He's invented it. And he but he feels like he's a failure because he can't find the next step. So because he's surrounded by people who just want to please him, as I think famous people often are, he goes in disguise, disguised as a graduate student to a Columbia University discussion group of academics. And he's really just hoping for some sort of new idea to spark him and he actually finds such an idea. And the idea is that of externalizing consciousness as a way of reaccessing one's own memories for a start and revisiting one's own past in a more complete way from a present-day perspective. And part of what inspires him to invent this. It's not just what he hears in the academic discussion group in disguise, but a wish of his own to remember the details around a really important event for him and another character in the book, which is that after a night of partying in 1993, they stood next to the East River, all of them at NYU students, and they talked about the future And then two of them walked down the river together, went swimming, and one of them drowned. So Bix was the last person to see these two before that happened. And he wants to remember that morning better than he does because, of course, our memories are very scant if you look at them closely. I mean, if you say, I'm going to remember a day, how much do you remember about that day? A few little moments that you go over again and again. So he wants all of it. And that is really the impetus for the invention, which I then explore from many, many angles as it impacts all kinds of people's lives, often just in the sense of watching people use this machine to view their own consciousnesses or each other's, which is another important facet of the machine. And that is, in a way, becomes both the more revolutionary aspect of the machine and also the more controversial aspect. There's an interesting kind of doubling here, which is that the memory he is tracking down this this tragic event in the East River is if if the reader has actually read your earlier work, this is a scene that actually takes place in Goon Squad. And so 
Bix is searching for this memory, and if you're a regular Jennifer Egan reader, you yourself are remembering this thing that you read, you know, 10 years ago in, in a novel. What was the point at which you decided to build off of the world that was that was so, you know, wonderfully captured in, in Goon Squad? You know, in a way, I think that I never really stopped thinking about it. The chapter in which the drowning occurs, and you're exactly right, we, the readers of that book, have actually witnessed this event. We certainly don't need to have done that or remember it to experience the candy house. But that was one of the later chapters I wrote for Goon Squad. I think it was the second to last one. And it's such a huge event that it felt a little like just Having this happen and then walking away from it didn't feel like quite enough. You know, we lose the protagonist of that chapter (laughs) in the course of, of the chapter. And so that was one of many things in Goon Squad that felt not exactly unresolved, but it felt a little cavalier to just leave it as is. I mean, the nature of these books is that we're inside a different consciousness in every chapter. And of course, each person is the center of our own cosmos, really. We are the product of our pasts, our geography, our circumstances, our ethnicity. And so it's inevitable that each one introduces a whole host of experiences and characters that could conceivably be explored. And the drowning was one of those cases. So the two people involved, other than the person who drowns, namely Bix and another man named Drew, whom we learn a lot more about in the course of The Candy House, they are very touched by this event. And I just felt right to take ownership of that and get in there and look at what the aftermath would be like. You were such a formally inventive writer. Goon Squad famously has this extended PowerPoint sequence in the second half of it. There are a number of amazing, almost magic tricks that you pull off in the candy house. But interestingly, the book you wrote between them, Manhattan Beach, is a fairly traditional, linear, historical work of fiction. But it I guess one of my questions to you is, like, at what point in the process do you think about how to structure the stories you're going to tell? Um, I've had a couple of books that I've written where I actually had the structure, you know, significantly in advance of the actual content of the book. There was, like, an architecture for the book that I had in mind, and it took me a couple of years to come up with the actual content to put inside of it. It Does that sometimes happen to you or do you start with a series of characters and then figure out the right structure to present those characters and their lives through? It's a little bit of a combination. I often have a wish list of things that I would like to try. So, for example, Mm -hmm. PowerPoint was on that list long before I was (laughs) able to use it because it's actually really hard to write fiction that works in PowerPoint. I definitely had a wish list In my mind, as I worked on Candy House, I hoped I could write something in the first-person plural as we. I hoped I could have an epistolary chapter completely in the form of letters. I really wanted to use Twitter uh, at 140 characters. I actually wrote that chapter much (laughs) earlier because of the kind of inadvertent poetry and the kind of the serialized nature of reading a story on Twitter. So there were certain things I knew I wanted to do, but— That in and of itself doesn't lead to anything. My entry point when I actually write fiction, oddly enough, is time and place. And I write 
my first drafts very improvisationally because I'm looking to get beyond what I can think of consciously. My conscious ideas are not good enough, frankly. They're not original. So I've got to get out from under those and get to something that surprises even me. And what I have found so far, knock wood, is that in the end, I'm usually able to imagine my way into a story, ultimately, that requires a form from my wish list. But it takes a lot of trial and error. I have to find a story that can only be told in an unusual format. So I'm looking to what I write to tell me how to write it. It's so interesting hearing you talk about those first drafts where you're struggling to surprise yourself on some level. There's a a great sequence in in the middle of Candy House where there's a character who works for a company called Sweet Spot Networks. And their job is to sit around diagramming kind of archetypal plot points in in narratives, like two of them that I jotted down where hero delivers comeuppance to perennial jerk, funny best friend, gets serious to talk sense into protagonist. And they they convert them into little little algorithms, little like mathematical equations. They're called stock blocks. And one I thought it was just very funny, like, but I, I it occurred to me like the, are are you battling stock blocks or trying to figure out a way to incorporate them into your work in some fashion? How much of the process of getting out of that first draft mode is either getting rid of the stock blocks in your prose or complexifying them? Well, I think that definitely getting rid of stock blocks in my prose is very important because, you know, because I write in a fairly blind, intuitive way for the first drafts, I do many, many revisions, but there are for sure cliches in there. So that would be a stock block on the level of the sentence. In terms of the plot stock blocks that Chris Salazar is trying to diagram into one gigantic algebraic system, I have a pretty big aversion to those wherever I encounter them. I mean, if I feel them happening in my own work, I feel almost sick, honestly. I have, I, it feels almost like an allergy. So I don't find too many of those creeping in. And if I do, it's usually a sign that I've really gone off the track, like there's just something not right. And they, But they actually, I'm, I'm remembering now, they really do occur. There were some big ones in Manhattan Beach when I was in the first draft that I wrote. And I had to just, you know, flush them all away. But I think, in a way, the the kind of improvisational first draft writing that I do is specifically an effort to get away from the kind of groupthink that I think all of us are more likely to engage in on the surface. And I will say that my my inspiration for thinking about Chris Salazar doing this work was that I saw a movie. It was a huge smash hit a few years ago. And I remember sitting there agape because I thought every single move in this movie and every line that people utter is a cliché. And I thought, this is almost a work of experimental art. Now, that was certainly not the intention, but I thought, I want to try to write something in which these these clichés have been made into mathematics and someone is trying to use that mathematics to create works that are commercially successful because the movie I was watching certainly was. One question I had was, it's it's very funny, as a lot of the book is, and uh, I was kind of curious, are, do you find that you are funny on the first draft or is the comedy something that takes 
a lot of iterations to get right because it it feels so un, unforced and and you know laugh out loud at, at at various points in the book. The comedy tends to happen spontaneously. I'm not a big jokester in real life. I actually am terrible at remembering jokes. I'm not someone who creates comedy at a dinner table. Believe me, I wish I were. What I think the comedy comes about through the improvisation, because the nature of improv, at least when I watch dramatic improv, let's say, I've never done it, is finding a line of action and and pushing into it. Like, you don't pull back. You just keep going. And if something feels alive, you push harder into it. If you If I do that on the page, I find that it naturally leads to comedy. It leads to extremes, one of which is often comic, although there's often another side to it. And in fact, in the chapter we were just talking about, things take an absolutely different turn toward the end of the chapter. And Chris actually thinks to himself, there has been a genre switch. So I'm looking to exploit every possibility about the situation I find myself in dramatically as I write. And so the the comedy tends to happen pretty early or in revision as I realize I haven't pushed hard enough. I, I want to get to the comedy generally. Speaking about the genre shift, so one macro question I came out of reading this book, having read Goon Squad, is the overall structure of it, the, this kind of genre. And, and there's maybe some other equivalents of books that have a, a little bit of this structure, but you really have developed it in, in these two novels in, in, in a really powerful way. One of the reviews in the Times compared it a little bit to the feeling of navigating through social media, right? That you're, you know, you land on somebody's page and that links to somebody else's page who's vaguely related to them, who you kind of know, and then you end up on somebody else's page. To me, I, I was thinking back to, you know, kind of the big triple-decker novels of the 19th century, if you think about the number of characters that you meet over the course of, you know, Bleak House or or Middlemarch, it's probably comparable. There's there's a big, you know, kind of sociological net that that is thrown out in those books. But they're more linear. They generally follow, a, you know, a straight timeline. You have a clearer sense of a central protagonist or a small group of protagonists. And so there's something different, even though you're you're covering the same overall amount of people. There's just a different approach that that you're taking in, in these books compared to those older traditional forms. You know, you could have written this in a traditional linear way and figured out, you know, two or three central protagonists and then had a bunch of cast of characters. You didn't do that. What? Why? I think that because I think it actually may be related to technology. I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting when people say it feels like moving through social media. That was very surprising to me when I wrote Goon Squad because I was barely on social media. <laughs> but I think that in a way, it's social media is sort of a metaphor for the feeling I want people to have as they move through these books, which is really that we're moving in and out of consciousnesses. We're mm. moving in and out of people's minds. The thing that fiction can do that no other narrative art form does in the same way, in my opinion, is actually give us a sense of being inside another human being. So if we're looking at an image of that human being, we are by definition in exactly the opposite position. We are on the outside. So what I and, – and the 19th century novels absolutely give us that sense of interiority. We move in and out of people's minds all the time. And there's also often a narrator with a specific personality who, who weighs in and editorializes. 
I want to have that same feeling of flexibility and motion and the ability to go inside people's minds and then out of those minds and into the the mind of the of the other person, let's say. Somehow for me, that feeling is best achieved through fragmentation, through combining smaller pieces, then writing it straight through in a linear way. And that may be because because of technology and a kind of fragmentation that exists in our consumption of technology. One more thing I'll add is that in my mind, what I'm thinking of is not the internet per se. With A Visit from the Goon Squad, I was thinking about record albums and the way that smaller, that songs, which are, you know, smaller pieces of music, combine in, let's say, a concept album, like we can use a contemporary example like Beyonce's Lemonade. Small pieces that sound different from each other combine to tell one big story. And with this one, I thought more about, like, game playing and the way that, for example, with Dungeons & Dragons, <laughs> you are moving among worlds, which are written often by hand on graph paper, worlds and scenes in which everything is different depending on where you are. And essentially, you're moving through portals in and out of imaginary worlds. And I imagined in the Candy House that we are moving through portals in and out of people's minds. You talked about the power of the novel to allow a reader to enter the consciousness of another human being, which which I agree is maybe it's great power compared to all other forms of art. And in the book, you have a line near the end about, in a sense, the relationship between Bix's technology, which is called Own Your Own Unconscious, this memory storing and sharing device. And a character observes near the end of the book that Own Your Own Unconscious posed an existential threat to fiction. And and so there's a there's a sense here in imagining this technology that it, it 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 would be the one thing that could do what the novel has historically done incredibly well. This would take it to a new level when you actually are entering the the, the mind and the experience of of being another sentient human being in the world. Talk about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that what when I imagine this machine, what it seems that it would make it so appealing. Like, I would love to review some of my memories. But it's this this drive toward authenticity that I think all of us feel if we, as, as modern people, living in a largely mediated world. And the wish for authenticity is as old as the screen. <laughs> and I've been thinking about it ever since I read a book by Daniel Borston called The Image. All he's talking about is television because there was no mass Pseudo media. events. That was his big phrase, pseudo events, right? These kind of like fake, fake events. Yeah, Exactly. And what he talks about is that the events that appear on television are fake. They are made for television, although they feel real. And he, he, he talks about things like press conferences, let's say. The viewer can sense that fakery or that artificiality, and so it leads to a hunger for authenticity and a kind of the beginning of a kind of, um, you know, a, a little bit of an obsession with authenticity. But then 
the media tries to satisfy that craving through ever greater feats of mediation that feel authentic, but in fact are not, which leaves the viewer still hungry. And it's a cycle that I think can explain pretty much every media development I've seen up to the present moment, right up to last night when I was on the subway with my son and he suddenly took a picture of the two of us. And I said, why are you doing that? And he said, it's this app. And I'm so sorry, I've forgotten the name. And the idea is that suddenly everyone who's on this app is told, snap a picture of yourself right now. And they don't know when that will come. And they do. And the idea is it's totally authentic. There's no way to prepare. There's no way to, you know, mediate or, or create the situation. You just, boom, tell us where you are. And I thought, oh, my God, Daniel Borston, <laughs> here we are. So I, I am interested in exploring this in all kinds of ways, and, and I do in the novel. Some of them, you know, really crazy. I mean, there's a guy who's so obsessed with authenticity that he takes to screaming in public to elicit authentic reactions. And there are all kinds of other moments where that idea comes up. But it's, it's really part and parcel of our media diet. The screaming sequence, you, you could, if you write a third book in this <laughs> in this series, I would take, you know, another three or four chapters. But it triggers genuine responses from people initially on the bus where they're in their own little worlds or their own little attitudes that are all, according to him, kind of fake on some level. And But when somebody starts screaming, there is a brief flash of authenticity that you get from the people around him. And it's just, it, it, is, it is an incredible sequence. <laughs> did, where, yeah. where, did that, where did that come from? <laughs> You know, that that had a long gestation. I was at the theater once, and I there was a friend sitting behind me who is very controlled in her reactions, like very uh, presentable always and, and kind of um, someone who rarely has a moment of looking uncomfortable or caught by surprise. And there was a moment when someone was trying to get past her as we were talking, and she had this look on her face that I had never seen before. But I found myself being curious about that moment. And then, as very often happens with me, I find myself thinking, what if there were someone, what if I wrote about someone who wants to collect those moments? What if I wrote about someone who can't live without those moments when they see someone in a totally unguarded state? When I actually started writing about where this would go, you know, I quickly found myself in kind of extreme territory because what happens if you want to always see unmediated reactions? And, you know, that can become a kind of compulsion unto itself, which is really what we see in Alfred. I mean, the reason he starts screaming is that he decides that this is a way that he can elicit very extreme reactions without actually physically hurting anyone. You know, he's terrifying them or upsetting them or enraging them, but he's not hurting them. So he sees it as a harmless way to basically create an environment where at one point he delightedly reflects as he's on the bus screaming his head off that it's the the faces around him look like the faces of fellow passengers on a plane heading directly into the sea. And he's <laughs> elated. 
I I was once on a plane and the person next to me was sleeping and they had some kind of nightmare that caused them to scream at full throttle, like right next to me on on a plane. And it was amazing. It was exactly that kind of response. Everyone around there was like, there is no situation on a plane where someone is suddenly screaming at at full volume. That is not a a terrible situation for all of us (laughs) on this plane. (laughs) The other thing I, I wanted to ask about thinking about these technologies. You alluded earlier to one of the chapters, Black Box. I'm just curious about that experiment um, and how did it feel writing inside of social media, not about social media? And is that something you're interested in pursuing further, writing outside of a print book kind of format? Well, the god I was serving was always the god of the printed page. I mean, Twitter was certainly part of the inspiration in that it was – I was looking for a story I could tell in 140-character utterances. And it was tweeted, but I didn't really know how it would work on Twitter. And in fact, it by those who were deeply into Twitter at that time, and I was not, all I had managed to accomplish was to get hacked by a vitamin salesperson <laughs> and send vitamin ads out to my, you know, or beleaguered, so you say. <laughs> my beleaguered <laughs> followers, those that were still with me after that mess. But what I was told by people who were deeply into Twitter was that it, it actually wasn't that satisfying as a Twitter experience for many reasons. One was the tweets came once a minute. It, which was way too seldom. And for people who were people who were following lots and lots of people on Twitter, there was too much in between those once a minute utterances for it to really make sense to them narratively. So the way the New Yorker did it was an hour a night for eight nights, one tweet a minute. So I think as a Twitter experiment, it had some success, but aesthetically it was not totally successful. In a way, for me, it was already a success because I had, in finding a story that could be told in those 140-character utterances, I had, you know, I had sort of lurched into a piece of fiction that felt, for me, really alive and kind of exciting. And it was actually the first piece of The Candy House that I wrote. I mean, I was thinking, and this is somewhat backed up by what you were saying about games and the inspiration for Candy House, uh, is that if there were an online version of it, the the way to tell this kind of story online would to be a, a version of a treasure hunt-like format where the story is actually kind of distributed across the web. And there, you know, if if you search, there's a kind of a fake website that tells one story, and then there's a fake journal entry on another site and whatever. And you just kind of secretly plant all these things all around the internet and then let your audience kind of slowly unravel that that kind of treasure hunt story. That to me is would be the logical uh, kind of next step in the evolution of, of this format, but it would leave the novel behind on some level, so probably wouldn't make sense. And it also wouldn't do the job, in my opinion, because once again, we would be looking at pictures and they would be trying to suggest inner life, but they would not be succeeding. And it's interesting, you it's something you asked earlier, I didn't fully answer. I had a moment of thinking about um, the connection between sort of where the Internet and and the novel start to intersect when I 
again and again couldn't figure out why one of my sons wanted to watch streamers playing video games or later playing chess. And I thought, like, this is—it's bad enough that you want to play video games. I realize I totally sound like a boomer, which I am (laughs) when I say that. It's bad enough that you want to spend so much time playing video games. But, like, really? You want to watch someone else playing video games? Like, how bizarrely meta and time-wasting can you get? (laughs) But then I started watching with him, and I suddenly got it. I thought, oh, I see— We are looking at the same thing the gamer is looking at, and we're hearing the gamer's stream of consciousness. We are as close as you can get looking at an image to actually being inside someone's mind. The fact that it's totally performative is well hidden (laughs) by the experience itself. So I suddenly thought, oh, of course, this is trying to do what fiction does. And you know, when you said, would fiction disappear? You know, how is it that fiction is so threatened by the, you know, the quote-unquote machine of own your unconscious? It's because it, I think what made me realize how powerful such a machine would be to actually take the place of fiction was that experience of watching streamers. One of the things that I think has been a consistent theme of the response to Candy House that that I share is that the book has an openness to the potential positive side of this technology. Does it does does it surprise you to hear that from readers and critics? Is that how you thought of it as you were writing it, or was that a kind of an unintended consequence? I think that the the unintended consequence is whenever I hear anyone describe it as dystopian, because for me as a writer, dystopia is not interesting. I'm not excited by it. It's There's no invitation for me to write fiction that is dystopian. So I am driven by curiosity and, and honestly delight mm-hmm. in exploring the lives that I explore. And I would never have written about technology if all I could bring to it was judgment and fear. Because again, it's not that that's not legitimate. And as a parent and a citizen, I do feel, you know, worry, a a lot of worry about technology. But as a writer, what I bring to it is curiosity. How does it interact with people's lives? And what can I do with that that will be fun? That is the bottom line question that I'm always asking. What can I do with that that will be fun? When I see streaming or when my son tells me about an app, when I finally learned what a blockchain was, I thought, <laughs> what can I do with that that will be fun? Can I, can I use blockchain to write fiction? I'm still asking myself that question. That's my sensibility. And it. I hope there's a feeling of openness and joy and humor because I just feel like that is what I want to do as a fiction writer. And I'm a journalist, too. So I can if I want to get out there and and, you know, engage very directly with the culture around me and even offer up opinions, I have another realm to do that. For me, fiction is about confronting the mystery and really honoring the mystery and the complexity of human life and to do it in a way that is fun. You alluded to the fact that the technology Bix invents uh, involving memory capturing and storing and sharing um, is far from reality. And I, you know, went into the book reading it thinking that as well, that this is, you know, we're, we're assuming this technology is even possible in, you know, in the in the 2010s when a lot of this takes place, when obviously it's something that 
we may never be able to do. Um, but it did occur to me kind of halfway through the book that there is an interesting analog, which I've been living in the, in, in the world over the last few months from something that I've been writing, which is artificial intelligence right now, and particularly large language models like GPT-3. For listeners who don't know this, this is the, the, the kind of the branch of AI that enables remarkably sophisticated writing where you can give it prompts and it will actually write stories or answer questions. And the parallel, I think, to what's happening with Own Your Own Unconscious is that algorithms like GPT-3 are trained on the entire corpus of writing that human beings have put on the internet over the last 30 or 40 years. And so when it is composing a story or when it is answering a question about some fact in, in history, on some level, it's synthesizing the ideas and thoughts uh, of billions of people that have been published you know, online over the last few decades. And so there's a hint there of, of what you're talking about. I, I don't know if you spent any time interacting with these language-based AIs. Have you thought about them in terms of your own work as a writer? No, I'm very interested in it. Um, and I have a few things to say about that. I had a conversation with Jaron Lanier recently, and um, he's a kind of a fascinating thinker on all of these matters. Um, and he talked about how it's become very hard for him to write on a computer because of all the suggestions that the the pro word word processing programs he's using keep making for his language, that they're distracting, they're not what he wants to say, and he feels like he's being corralled into very uh, normative language where he may he might have wanted to do something different. And that was really interesting to me. And I, I guess the question of how much it matters that a computer can do things and how much that really is going to change our experience of doing them is really rich and fascinating. So when I hear about AI that can review all of human utterances thus far, okay, great. Does that mean it's going to contribute meaningfully to, let's say, the literary arts? I would be incredulous. Yeah. There was a really interesting New Yorker article a few years ago by John Seabrook that was talking about kind of earlier versions of this GPT-3 large language model stuff and, and autocomplete, what Jaron Lanier is talking about. And he tells this great story about writing an email to his son. And he writes the email. At the end of the email, he starts a sentence that says, I'm, and the, the autocomplete fills it out, says, proud of you. And he's like, yes, I, I, that, what was the last time I said I was proud of him? That's, that's exactly what I want to say. And then he all of a sudden is like, wait, what just happened? <laughs> the AI just taught him to be a little bit more emotionally aware and sensitive based on, you know, scanning through millions of emails that people have typed in Gmail in the past. And it actually briefly made him a better dad, arguably, but it was also a very, you know, uncanny kind of moment. And, and I think that's... We're just going to hit a lot of those experiences going forward and trying to figure out how to navigate that, I think, is going to be, you know, one of the big challenges of the next 10 years. And we'll see what it does to art. That's a wonderful anecdote. I mean, and to me, I, what I love about it is that's taking the best of machine learning and bringing it back into human life. You know, I I, I have really no problem with that. Like, I think that's great. <laughs> but I, I, I guess to me... You know, especially as someone who relies so heavily on my unconscious to come up with material that is original, I guess what I feel is that 
art begins where that kind of processing of pre-existing utterances ends. <laughs> I think that in a way that processed version, those paths of least resistance creatively are exactly what I find in myself if I don't write in an improvisational way. If I sit down and just think, oh, okay, what kind of story can I tell this way? It's never a good idea. Like, for example, with PowerPoint, when I wanted to use that, my first thought was, okay, I want to write fiction in PowerPoint. How am I going to do that? I guess the question is, you know, can language-based AI get out ahead of the language that it is processing? That's what I'm not so sure about. Yeah, it's a good. I mean, can it get outside of the stock box, right? It, it, it probably will get very good. You can see it already. Like when you ask it to tell stories, there is some pattern recognition there of basic, almost kind of fairy tale like story structures. But I, I want to just zoom out one layer here as we get to the end of this amazing conversation. And that is something that we've kind of danced around a little bit, which is really the, the role of the novel in helping people make sense of technological change. And here again, I, I kind of think back to the 19th century tradition as well. I mean, that was a big part of what Dickens was trying to do is make sense of the new reality of industrial life. So much of what the novel was doing at that point is to say, okay, we're going to make this really new experience kind of coherent to you and give you a way of turning it into an understandable kind of story. And I'm, I'm curious, is that an important role for the novelist in society still? Well, to me, any work of art is an artifact of the dream life, if you will, of the cultural moment that creates it. And in the end, art is really all we have left with which to recreate his human history. <laughs> art is what lasts. And fiction, which is relatively new, certainly newer than, say, the visual arts or sculpture, is, is a, a, a particularly narrative artifact of the collective dream life of the moment that makes it. And the reason I say dream life is that it in fiction, there's so much information compressed, but also there's a kind of, it's a symbolic text. And I think the metaphor really holds because, you know, all of us dream at night and we create these rich symbolic texts out of the everyday stuff of our lives. And sometimes they're very obvious, like I'm late and I can't get there or whatever. But sometimes they're really hard to interpret and make us question what what exactly we are thinking about. And to me, that is what fiction does for the cultural moment. And my my writing process is all about just trying to let as much of the world around me into the work as I can, because to me, that's where the relevance and the value really comes from. And in terms of what what role fiction performs, I think it it can perform the role of being an artifact that is provoking and, well, hopefully entertaining and transporting, but also provoking in the way that a powerful dream can be and, and inviting us to ask questions about the moment that we occupy. And I think that the, we are more and more aware as we become more and more data-obsessed as a culture— of the need for storytelling. I'm kind of fascinated by the degree to which everyone wants to create a story around everything. But I think that impulse is really reasonable because data on its own is nothing. <laughs> it's just facts. It's the interpretation of that data 
that is the crucial element, and that is the storytelling. We are drowning in data, but what what part of it are we supposed to be looking at and what are we supposed to be making of it? And that paradox between the inundation of data and the, the, the interpretive need to actually make something of it was one of the things I was really thinking about actively as I worked on this book. And the way in which data can describe human behavior in large numbers, but human beings ourselves remain extremely mysterious to ourselves and to each other. And I feel like the, the job of the novel is to enter that mystery and give us human life in all of its hilarity and complexity and mystery. Mystery is a great place to to end on, I think. We we have a question on the show that we ask all of our guests, um, which is, what is the mystery that's still out there, the kind of the unsolved problem in your field or just in society around you um, that you're most intrigued to find the answer to? I think that the problem I would like to see solved is the problem of the Internet prompting a cultural psychosis in which people cannot distinguish between reality and illusion. You know, my brother was schizophrenic, and we were extremely close. He took his life in 2016 because a lifetime of living with psychosis was so exhausting and so difficult for him that he gave up. He ran out of energy. I find it terrifying and deeply concerning to see a psychosis that is overwhelming the inner lives of lots and lots of people who believe things that appear to be substantiated by fact. That's the nature of psychosis. My brother heard voices in his head telling him that the things he believed were true, but 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 things that actually are not true culturally. So the big lie, QAnon, all of that is really I feel very sympathetic to the people who believe these things. They are receiving information that tells them that these things are true, and yet they are not. That's the definition of psychosis, and I don't know how we solve that. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. So many aspects of your work are just really resonate with this moment and all of the issues that we're all wrestling with. And the work is also just incredibly entertaining uh, and delightful and, and full of fun at the same time, which is a rare combination. So, Jennifer Egan, thank you so much for joining us today. Such a pleasure. Thank you. The TED Interview is part of the TED Audio Collective. The show is brought to you by TED and Transmitter Media. Sammy Case is our story editor. Fact-checking by Miri Yesutasen. Farah DeGrange is our project manager. Greta Cohn is our executive producer. Special thanks to Michelle Quint and Anna Phelan. I'm your host, Stephen Johnson. For more information on my other projects, including my latest book, Extra Life, you can follow me on Twitter at Stephen B. Johnson or sign up for my Substack newsletter, Adjacent Possible.